Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. What a beautiful, beautiful time of worship and prayer that was. Truly, there is joy in the house of the Lord. And uh, as we were praying with our service team before the service there, it's never just another Saturday. Amen? You believe that, church? It's never just another Saturday. Every time we open up the Word of God and people are exposed to that truth, lives are changed. So let's get after it. John chapter 18. John chapter 18, starting at verse 12. Going on to verse 27. Hey, people online, so thankful for you. John 18, 12 to 27. Here we are in our next message in our series on the Gospel of John. And it's the series title is entitled The Triumphant King. And the specific message for tonight is titled When Things Seem Out of Control. It's a timely word for today, would you say, church? When things seem out of control. It's almost like God knows where he wants us in his word. Go figure. Let me ask you a question. Loved ones, how do you respond when things seem out of control? Just assess for yourself. How do you respond when things seem out of control? Whether in your life personally, in the lives of others you love and care about, or as you turn on the news and you scroll on social media and you see what's happening globally. When things seem to be unraveling, how do you respond when things seem out of control? In our city, our city has just gone through a very turbulent few months, hasn't it? My inbox has been filled with many messages saying, is it really as chaotic as it looks? What's really happening? How about in... How do you respond when things seem out of control in your family? When your children just seems like they're just walking away. When you wonder if anything that God has entrusted you with as you try faithfully to teach them in the training instruction, is anything working? It just seems to be going out of control. Or maybe you're here and you have a prodigal child who you did your best under the power of God to train up and, and you want so desperately for that son or daughter to walk in the ways of the Lord and yet they seem to be walking away. How do you respond? How do you respond in your personal life when you lose the job? When the bank account, there's more month left than your money. How do you respond when that sin issue continues to rear its ugly head in your life and you can feel so, did anyone ever feel defeated by the ugliness of sin in your life? And you're just like, am I not past this yet? Why is this still so hard? Why is this still so devastating as I see the impacts on those that I love, my marriage, my children, my own life? How do you respond when you feel like you're sinking and hopeless? Maybe when the depression gets darker, when the despair gets greater. Loved ones, how do you respond? See, here's the problem I think we can even see from just asking that question. 
instead of responding with faith in our triumphant King, Jesus Christ, who is sovereign over all, listen, we often respond by turning from Him, don't we? We turn from Him and we start putting our faith and trust and hope in ourselves. Well, I gotta find my way out of this. I have to do this. I've gotta push forward to get through this. Or we put our faith and trust in other things and people. And what's this? What's the real issue underlying this? Here it is. Unbelief. Unbelief that Jesus is truly triumphant. There it is. It's the battle of unbelief every day. And what's the result of turning from the Lord and turning to these things? Here it is right here. We live with fear, not faith. Anyone want to cry out to the Lord, Lord, increase my faith today? We live with fear, not faith. We live with anxiety and not peace. We live with shame and guilt instead of hope and assurance. I wonder how many of us in here, even preparing this message, the Lord revealed this in my life. How many of us are sitting right here under shame and guilt and condemnation right now? Packaging a face that looks really good saying the right things, having the right answers, but inside there's turmoil. I got good news for us tonight, church. You ready for some good news? Hey, kids, you ready for some good news? Okay, kids, louder than that. You ready for some good news? All right, say this with me. Good news is God news. All right, here's God news for us. Ready, kids? Remember this big idea. Here it is. Jesus is sovereign even when things seem out of control. And you must believe in him. There it is. There's the big idea for the text today. Jesus is sovereign even when things seem out of control. You must believe in him. Lord, help us believe. Amen? Lord, help us believe. Now, let's get on the same page, because maybe you're here and you weren't here last week, and so you're wondering, what is sovereignty? That's like a big word. Yeah, it's a big word, but here's what it means. Theologian Wayne Grudem says it this way. You'll see it on the screen. Sovereignty is God's exercise of power over his creation. It's not the power of creation over God. No, no. Sovereignty is God's exercise of power over his creation. Here's what it means. God having supreme power over all things and working them out for his glory and the good of those who love him. That's comforting today, isn't it? And here in our context, the Garden of Gethsemane. There it is. The garden where Jesus was arrested. And it's during the feast of Passover. What's Passover? Well, this is where uh, a festival, even today, the major of major festivals in Israel, where every male 12 plus from Israel and all around the Roman Empire at this time, they come to Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is packed with like 600,000 to a million people. It's packed, it's bursting, and it's the Passover. So they're celebrating how God delivered them from Egypt. When he passed over the houses of the Israelites and ultimately put to death the firstborn of the Egyptians and delivered Israel out of slavery. And it's Thursday night of the Passion Week. You say, what's the Passion Week? The last week of Christ's life. Thursday night, it's the night before, literally hours before, his crucifixion. 
And there's a confrontation happening in the garden. You'll see it on the screen. Judas has betrayed Jesus and brought these thugs, this Roman cohort of soldiers, anywhere upwards of 200 to 600 soldiers, and they've confronted them. And the temple police are included in there, and they've come to arrest Jesus. Why do they want to arrest Jesus so bad? Because he claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed to be the Son of God, and ultimately Jesus claimed to be God Almighty himself, and the Pharisees hate him for it. He's stealing their glory. They love the glory from man. And people are going to Jesus as they see his miracles and they hear his teaching. I want you to recall what happened in that garden. Do you remember from last week? Peter, gotta love Peter. Jesus with his disciples in the garden. The Roman mob comes. And what does Peter do? Things are going out of control. I gotta take matters into my own hands. Brings out the dagger. He brings out the dagger and he slices off one of the servants ears of the high priest, okay? So one of the servants of the high priest, Peter cuts off his ear. And what's amazing, it's not listed in this text, but as we see in Luke twenty-two fifty-one, 51, uh, Jesus, like, he picks up his enemy's ear. The guy's name's Malchus, as you see in the text here. He picks up his enemy's ear and he heals it back on like that. When that guy's there to arrest him. Awesome. Awesome. And now this happens in this text today. That's where we leave off. And now this happens. Scene moves from the garden to the temple right here, the court of the high priest. The temple is divided into different courts. Okay, you've got the court of the women, court of the Gentiles on the outside, and now court of the high priest right beside, as you can see, as close as you can get to the temple proper. And they move, and the scene moves now. The, the narrative moves now from a scene of apprehension where they're coming after Jesus to apprehend him and arrest him to a scene of interrogation. From apprehension to interrogation, and there's actually two interrogations going on in our text today. One is to Jesus, and one is to Peter. Okay? There's two interrogations happening. And I want you to notice this. Even though from a human perspective, if you read this text And if you're putting yourself in the disciples' shoes, you're like, things are going out of control, spiraling out of control very quickly. Be encouraged. Be encouraged, loved ones, right here. Jesus is in sovereign control over every detail, every part of these events, and is using them to fulfill God's plan of salvation. And so here in our text today, oh, I've been praying for you so much this week, church you would be encouraged and strengthened through this because we are going to see two truths of Christ's sovereignty that we must live by faith from. If we are to rest in him, no matter what, and return to him day by day, no matter what's happening to us or around us, and we must live by these, by faith, if we are to see his glory and power in and through our lives as he advances his kingdom for his glory. You guys ready to read? Yeah, let's go, church. Let's stand to honor the authority of God's word. And we're going to read John chapter 18, verses 12 to 27. Hey, kids, get your Bibles out. John 18, 12 to 27. Let's read this nice and loud. This is the word of God. Let's go. Jesus faces Annas 
and Caiaphas. Verse 12, let's go church. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who've heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said was wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once the rooster crowed. Hear the word of the Lord and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. All right, here we go. Let's go. When things seem out of control, you must believe, loved ones, that Jesus is sovereign, ready, over all evil and rest in him. When things seem out of control, you must believe that Jesus is sovereign over all evil and rest in him. Here's a great word to take with you into the workplace when you turn on the news this week. Listen, evil is no match for God's sovereignty. I'll say it again. Evil is no match for God's sovereignty. Hey, loved one, will you rest in him? Look at 12 to 14 again. Hey, kids, by the way, eyes up here, great reading. Oh, yeah. Doesn't it feel good to read God's word together? Yo, kids at home, I hope you're reading at home too. That's beautiful. Good job. Praise the Lord. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. 
14. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. See what happens there? After the soldiers bind Jesus. Now remember, to bind means to be put in chains. And the only reason they're able to put him in chains is why? Because Jesus is allowing them to. Remember that. So after they bind Jesus, they take him back, notice, across the Kidron Valley. So in the Garden of Gethsemane, they go down the Mount of Olives, across the Kidron Valley, and back up to Jerusalem and the temple. And they bring him to the court of the high priest in the temple. Right there. You see it right there. How do we know that? Well, just look at verse 15. It says they went to the court of the high priest. Praise the Lord for clarity. Now, here's what they do when they get there. They bring him before a man named Annas. See the text? They bring him before a man named Annas, who is father-in-law of the current high priest, Caiaphas. You're like, what, what does this have to do with anything? Like this section of what's happening to Jesus isn't in any of the other synoptic gospels. This is it. You won't find it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So why does John add this? Well, here's the deal with Annas. He's a very big deal. Everyone say, he's a big deal. He's a big deal. He's a former high priest. He was high priest in Israel from AD, approximately AD 5 to AD 15, so like 10 years. Now, he was removed by a previous Roman governor who governed just before Pilate. This Roman's governor name was Valerius, and he removed Annas. But here's the thing. You say, well, what's the big deal? Why is he going? Annas is removed. Uh, not in the Jewish people's eyes. See, Annas still had great influence over the role of the high priest, and he was actually still regarded as the true high priest in the eyes of the Jews. Why? Because even though, when the Romans took over Israel, even though they appointed and replaced high priests, they gave themselves that authority, guess what? The Jewish people regarded the role of the high priesthood office as being for life. That's why Annas is such a big deal. They regarded Annas still as the true high priest. And so you say, well, what's the deal with the high priest? Let's be clear. What's the big deal with the high priest? Well, you see the high priest for that year that the Romans have put in place is Caiaphas. Just look at 13 and 14. Now, the role of the high priest was a big deal. So in, in addition to their regular priestly duties, the high priest had the greatest duty of all. And that was to go once a year into the Holy of Holies, right into the temple, right in the temple where the Ark of the Covenant was and make atonement for the sins of all the people. All right, that was the chief job of the high priest. But that wasn't all he did. He was also the president of the Sanhedrin. You say, what's the Sanhedrin? Good question. It was the Jewish Supreme Court. So the high priest oversees the Supreme Court and all the judicial proceedings but here's what John's referring to right here. Watch this, beautiful. The high priest was originally looked upon as the means through which God's will was revealed. It was looked upon as the means through which God's will was revealed, which John emphasizes in verse 14. Did you see why John emphasized it? Let's read it again. It was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. See, watch, John purposely brings us back there. John restates what he said in John chapter eleven, fifty, where Caiaphas is talking to the Sanhedrin and coming up with a plot to kill Jesus. Turn over a few pages in your Bibles to John chapter 11. Go ahead. Turn it over. Flip the pages. Turn them over. 
Love it. Love hearing those pages of God's word flipping. Yes. Yes, Lord. That's why we bring our Bibles. John chapter 11, verses 45 to 50. Let's, let's go back there to get some context because this is amazing. The plot to kill Jesus. Here's what John's referring to. He says, many of the Jews, so after Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead, all these Jews are flocking to him. And he says, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, raising Lazarus, they believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees, the same guys in this text, they gathered the council, the Sanhedrin, and said, what are we going to do with Jesus? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone's going to believe in him. That's the greatest fear of the Pharisees, that we're going to lose our glory from man. Anyone struggle with wanting the glory from man? We're going to lose our place. Everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation because they're worried about an uprising, and Romans cracked down on uprising because they wanted to keep law and order. So if you can't keep law and order, you're all ousted. The Romans are coming, but one of them, Caiaphas, this is who John's referring to right here, who was high priest that year, does that sound familiar? Said to them, you know nothing at all, guys says to the Supreme Court, you guys know nothing. Don't you know what the answer is here? Nor do you understand that it is better for you, here it is, that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. See, here's what Caiaphas says. Hey, guys, don't you know that it's better for you and me, better for protecting your position and authority if we just kill Jesus? And he dies for, circle the word for, and he dies for, that means on behalf of, as a substitute for, in the place of the people, rather than the whole nation perishing through a Roman crackdown and us losing the position. Here's what Caiaphas says, either Jesus dies or the nation does. Either Jesus dies, or they, and then look at 51 and 52 of John 11. Just keep reading a little bit. Look what John adds. He did not say this of his own accord. Wait a second, what? Everybody say, what? He did not say this of his own, well, wait a second. It said, Caiaphas said it. Who's speaking? Wait, who? It said Caiaphas was speaking. What? He's not of his own accord? But being high priest that year, watch this, keep reading, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. So there it is. They viewed the high priest as the one who would reveal God's will. And look what God's doing. Through the corrupt, e listen, listen, through the corrupt, evil high priest. What is God doing? It says this. And not for the nation only would Jesus die, 52, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Wow. You see, John adds those last two verses, 51 and 52, in, in a powerful picture of God's sovereignty that we need to have at the forefront of our minds and hearts today. And he says that although Caiaphas, it was Caiaphas moving his lips, speaking evil against God, hey, he wasn't the only one speaking, was he? He wasn't the only one speaking. Watch this. It was also God doing the speaking. 
Verse 51, remember? Not of his own accord, John 11. See, God, look what he's doing here. God is actually using Caiaphas in all his corruption and all of his evil and all of his selfishness and all of his lack of love for those he leads. Listen, he's using Caiaphas as a prophet to declare his plan of salvation for the world. Both were speaking, Caiaphas and God, but they were not saying the same thing. Both were speaking. And I love how this is such a beautiful picture of Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1. Be encouraged with this today. It says, the heart of a king is like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. And he turns it any way he wishes. Evil's no match for God's sovereignty. You see, God, by his divine power and sovereignty, he turned Caiaphas's wicked, evil thoughts and words into prophesying the truth. See, Caiaphas thinks he's come up with the grand plan to stop the kingdom of God. He thinks he's come up with the grand plan to put Jesus to death permanently. But in reality, God in his sovereignty is using him as a catalyst. Do you see that? God's using Caiaphas as a catalyst to advance his kingdom through. And after this, notice, go back to our text in John 18. Awesome. After this, the enemy continues to stack the odds against Jesus. Look at John 19, 24. Flip, just skip over a few verses. We'll come back to those. But John 18, starting in 19. Watch this. Then, so the odds still get stacked. The high priest, that is Annas, then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me these things? about my teaching. Why do you ask me about my message? Ask those who've heard me what I've said of them. They know what I said. And when Jesus had said these things, one of the officers standing by, he knows he's rebuking Annas. He comes and he struck Jesus with his hand. It means he slapped him across the face saying, is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, then bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas, verse 24, then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. See, in verse 19, Annas begins to informally interrogate Jesus. He's interrogating him about his teaching, his claims that he was the Messiah and God, and about the disciples. All right, so he's informally interrogating him. And Jesus responds with a rebuke to Annas and says literally this, right from the text, I have nothing to hide. Listen, Annas, I have spoken the same in private as I have in public. My message has not changed. There's no secret conspiracy I'm doing here to try to overthrow the Roman government. There's no conspiracy. So instead of asking me about my teaching, um, why don't you ask the witnesses that have heard me? The message hasn't changed. Now, here, here's the key what we have to understand why that witnesses piece is so important. Here's what's so key. Jesus is calling out their evil against him. 
He's calling out the evil by charging them from the Old Testament law that the Pharisees prided themselves in keeping. When you say, what Old Testament law? In fact, Deuteronomy 17.6. You can check that if you want. Deuteronomy 17.6. This is what Jesus is calling out, the unfairness and corruption of his trial. See, because according to the law of the Jews, given by Moses, they had to bring forth the two to three witnesses that were required by Old Testament law to testify to the truthfulness of a matter. This is what Jesus is saying. Where's the witnesses? He's asking for a fair trial. Where's the witnesses? See, see, according to Old Testament law, the Pharisees, religious leaders, Sanhedrin, they weren't even supposed to be asking him as the accused what is true and what isn't. They were supposed to be asking the witnesses. And so he calls out here their corruption and mistreatment of him as he knew they had no interest in giving him a fair trial. And as you can see from verse 14, they had already decided Jesus' fate. They already had their minds made up and Jesus is calling it right out. He goes, I know what you're doing. I know what's going on here. You're not even obeying your own law. And in return, as you see in verse 22, as he rebukes Annas, he's then slapped in the face by an officer. And again, Annas, notice, did you get an answer from Annas to any of Jesus' questions? Everyone say no, no answer. There's no answer from Annas. He realizes, notice, notice this, verse 24. Annas realizes he's got nothing on Jesus. He's got no case. He can't even get the witnesses. He's got no case against Jesus. And in verse 24, what does he do? Exasperated, maybe feeling defeated, he sends him on to Caiaphas, his son-in-law, for a formal court proceeding in front of the Sanhedrin. Hey, watch what happened right there. Evil corruption. Evil all over the place. No chance of a fair trial. And yet, Jesus knows this. Here's the, here's the even more mind-blowing thing. Ready for this? Eyes up here. Jesus is submitting to this. Jesus knows what's going on. And he's submitting to what isn't right. And he's using this to get to the cross. It's his plan. And fulfill the plan of God and advance his kingdom around the world for his glory. I love how one commentator put this. Be encouraged with this, loved ones. He said, even the worst evil cannot escape the sovereignty of God. I'll say it again. When you flick on the news, <clears throat> when you scroll on social media, when you hear the conversations with your coworkers and neighbors, you remember this. Even the worst evil cannot escape the sovereignty of God. Jesus knows every backdoor conversation these religious leaders have had about him. Jesus knows all of the secret thoughts they've had. The backdoor deals that they've made. 
and none of it, everyone say none of it, none of it can escape his sovereignty. And today, let's bring it into today. Jesus sees the evil going on in this world. Here in our city, in our nation, across this world, in your own hearts, in mine, he sees the corruption. Here's another one, ready? Jesus sees the injustice. He sees the mistreatment. He sees the pain that that has caused. He sees the bills that get passed and knows what they are before you or I even hear about them. He sees the sin issues in our lives. He sees the racism and he sees the division. And loved ones, make no mistake, it grieves his heart. And it should grieve ours. We should not be participating in that. It grieves his heart. But rest assured, Hope Bible Church Ottawa, as I stand before you today as your senior pastor and one of your elders upholding this word of God by his power, listen, justice is on the way. I'll say it again. Justice is on the way. Let's not put ourselves in God's place to bring it. Jesus is good and is in complete control over every detail of everything you see and experience. He's triumphant over it and is using it to build his church for his glory and you and I as part of it. And he's going to turn based on the authority of his word. He will turn all of this evil for good for those who love him and have been called according to his purpose and nothing can stop him. There is no evil that is a match for Jesus. It's over when it stands before the power of God. It's already a mismatch. How do you know? You say, well, that's great. Is that just kind of like mood thinking? No, just look at God's word right here. Isaiah 46, be ministered to it. You'll see it on the screen. Write the reference down and go back to it again and again and again and again and again every day. For I am God, he says, and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel, look at this, Caiaphas's counsel? No, 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 my counsel is going to stand, and I will, look at this promise, I will accomplish all my purpose. My purpose. Seeing the kingdom of heaven on the kingdom in this world. Kingdom of heaven on earth. I will accomplish my purpose. Not just, not just a bit of my purpose, not just a part of it, unless something happens that I didn't expect. He's like, no, all my purpose. I've got this, church. I've got this. Put away your daggers. Follow me. I've got this. 
See, evil is no match for God's sovereignty, loved ones. Will you rest in him? Will you rest? You say, well, how? Does anyone ever struggle? Let's think about this. I want this to be so helpful for us. Does anyone ever struggle with resting in the Lord? Just put your hands up. Everyone struggle with resting? Okay, we're all on the same page. That's really good. We struggle with resting in the Lord. What does it mean? We hear that and we're like, yes, God, give me your rest. But would you know how to do that? How does he tell us to do that? Everyone say, how does he tell us? Great question. Glad you asked. All right, let's go. Ready? How do we rest in the Lord when things seem to be out of control? Number one, here it is. Write these down. You'll see them on the screen. Admit. Admit. Come clean. Lord, I'm angry. Lord, I'm anxious. Lord, I'm fearful. Lord, I'm frustrated. Lord, I'm not going to pretend like everything's fine. I need you. Call on him. This is my burden. I'm, Lord, I want to control this situation. I see. I want to just run and do my own thing that I think needs to happen. Admit it. Come clean before the Lord. You say you got something to back that up? You bet I do. Proverbs chapter 3, 5, and 6. If any of you were in Sunday school, that, old, that thing before that we used to do, Sunday school. Listen, here's one of the key verses. Trust in the Lord with and lean not on your but in all your ways and he shall notice what said in all your ways acknowledge him what's that admit it lord i can't do this if i follow my emotions right now it's going to go bad if i follow my feelings people are going to get hurt including me I need to admit before the Lord and acknowledge the Lord, I need you. Your ways are right, mine are not. Your patience is what I need. I can't muster this up on my own. I'm fearful about those backdoor conversations that are happening in our nation and around the world. I can't handle that. You're there, I'm not. Acknowledge him and trust in him. Admitting to the Lord our burden and concern is an act of faith. It's an act of trust. Here's the second thing, ready? Admit, and then the second one is this, submit. So I've admitted my burden. Now I need to submit it. Let it go to the Lord. Cast, Psalm 55 verse 22 says this, cast your burden on the Lord, and watch this. Here's the promise, he will sustain you. You can't, hey, here's the reality that's a real shot to our pride and our flesh. You and I can't sustain ourselves in any sort of steadfastness and faithfulness. Can't happen. We're gonna do our own thing all the time and it's gonna go bad. He says, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. Here's, here's what it means to cast. Here's what it means to cast. Let me help you with this. Lord, I submit this. What is it? What is it for you today? I submit this under your sovereignty the fear that I'm having, the anxiety, the depression, the despair, the anger, I'm the longing, the weariness. I submit this under your sovereignty and I cast it on you. Help my unbelief. Help my unbelief because I'm so tempted to go my own way. I submit this. I admit that you're right and I'm not. And I submit to your sovereign hand. And then here's the challenge for us. Ready? Once you cast it, don't take it back. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, because you've done it, I've done it. You submit, you're like, Lord, I give it to you. 
And then you get out in traffic and you start thinking about it again. You start getting fearful again. Don't take it back. Put casting on the Lord on repeat every single day. And if you got it, you say, it feels like I'm always casting. Yeah, that's about right. It feels like I can never, I'm always tempted with this. Yeah, that's about right. Cast it. Cast it on the Lord and he will sustain you. The confession of, Lord, I can't sustain myself is one of the most freeing confessions you can make. You and I were never made to be independent. We were created to be dependent on the Lord. And just cast it. My kids, again, my kids, oh man, I'm tempted with, I'm burdened for the kid. Cast it on him. I'm feeling overwhelmed, but cast it on him. In my marriage, I cast it on him. We admit it, we need him, we acknowledge him in that situation. We submit it to him, don't take it back, keep casting, put it on repeat. And then lastly, here it is, commit. Admit, submit, commit. What's this? John 15, Jesus says, abide in me. What does commitment look like? Abiding. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. There is no spiritual good apart from me. You want to know my peace? You want to know my rest? Abide. Don't hang on to your burden. Cast it on me. I took that on the cross for you. Cast it on me. Submit it. And then commit that you will abide with me. What is that? Remaining with him. Set your eyes on the Lord through his word. Turn off the news. Turn off social media. Open up his word. Open up his word on your lunch hour, before you go into that meeting, on your coffee break, open up his word, renew your mind, spend time in prayer, and then walk in obedience in his power. Just do what the book says. You need to humble yourself in this situation? Do it. You need to confess that sin? Do it in his power. His blessing is promised on the other side of that. And here's another thing in these days, why it's so crucial. Hey, loved ones, uh, don't, 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 don't stop meeting together. Right here. This is encouraging. This is building up of the faith. Don't stop meeting together. Keep going back to what God says is right. So question, loved ones, what step do you need to take today? And if you're here and you've never confessed Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, I hope you can see right now, even from this text, it's under his sovereignty that you've been brought here tonight. He ultimately was the one that led you here. And you say, well, how do I find my rest in God? How do I find rest and stop living grip? Here it is. Do the same thing. Admit. You admit that you're a sinner and you're separated from God because of your sin. He is a holy God. And you and I are sinners. And our sin separates it. Separates us from him. And then you submit You submit to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior by humbling yourself, repenting of your sin, that is turning from it and confessing him as your Lord and Savior, saying, Jesus, my life is yours. I need to have peace with God and you are the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to him but through you. And then what do you do? You commit. Commit to follow him as the Lord of your life. Say, Jesus, I need you and I will follow you. Now watch this. Look at Matthew eleven twenty eight. How many of us need to hear this today? You'll see it on the screen. Come to me. That's a command. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will, promise, I will give you rest. 
Stop trying to save yourself. Stop living the old life if you have new life in him. Admit, submit, and commit. And you will find rest by his power through the gospel. Will you come to him and find rest? See, when things seem out of control, you must believe that Jesus is sovereign over all. And with this, when things seem out of control and we blow it in staying faithful. Hey, has anyone blown it over the last little while? Maybe this last week and staying faithful to the Lord? Yeah, right here. Yep, I get it. We're in church. We can't lie. Bring it on. All right? Here's the thing. And when we blow it in staying faithful to the Lord, here's what we got to understand. Last point for tonight. Ready? Jesus is sovereign over your failure. Return to him. Jesus is sovereign over your failure and mine. Return to him. In Je- here, remember this. In Jesus, your failure, my failure, never has the last word. Will you return to him? Will you return? Look at 15 to 18. Go back to the text. So good. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple, since that disciple was known to the high priest. He entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. And the servant girl at the door said to Peter, "Uh, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. See, the scene now switches from the interrogation of Jesus in front of Annas to the interrogation of Peter in the courtyard. See, Peter follows Jesus along with the other disciple to see what would happen. Now, who's this another disciple? Well, we, can get our, we don't know 100%, but we're 99% sure it's John himself, as we see in John chapter 20, verse 2, when it's the same description that we see here. All right? And so look what happens. As they head to the courtyard, so remember, here we are. You see it right there. They head to the courtyard of the high priest. Notice that? John gets through easily in verse 15. John gets into the courtyard really easily. Why? Because he was known by the high priest. It says that there. Now, we don't know how close John and Caiaphas were, but we know that Caiaphas knew him. And then Peter is left outside. He's afraid to enter. Don't forget, he sliced off a servant's ear a few moments ago. He's hanging back. And then John, he comes back. He's like, what are you doing? He talks to the servant girl who's the doorkeeper to the courtyard of the high priest. And once, <laughs> and John uses his influence with the high priest to get Peter into the courtyard. John name drops himself. Hey, I'm John. Yeah, me and Caiaphas, we go way back. Let him in. So here he comes with Peter. He's going in. Now notice verse 17. Once there, the servant girl, the doorkeeper, she asked Peter, not even, and guys, this isn't necessarily even in hostility. This is just a genuine question. She asked Peter if he's also one of Jesus' disciples, to which Peter, who's already on edge, slice, he's like, can you just kind of see him? Uh, uh, nope, nope, not me. He's not like, yeah, I'm Peter. I'm the guy who just like took that guy's ear off. That's me. He didn't do that. He's scared. 
He says, uh, no, it's not. Even though, listen, you, you notice what fear does to our thinking? Peter says this, even though the servant girl already knew John was a disciple. Look how she worded the question. She says, you're not also one. What does she know? I know John is. And she led him right through. Why would Peter think she'd stop him? See, even though this girl knew John was a disciple already, Peter's afraid and anxious. He knows what he did in the garden. He's on edge. He's not thinking clearly. Here's the question for us. Can anyone in this room relate to the fact that fear doesn't help you think clearly? Can anyone relate to that? The fear of man, listen, Proverbs 29, 25 says this. The fear of man is a snare. It causes devastation in your life and everyone who's impacted by that. It's a train wreck that you're causing. It's a snare, but those who trust in the Lord are safe. They are safe. And notice what he does. So verse 18, Peter gets into the, Peter gets into the courtyard. He's got his head down. Where does he go? It says right out of the text. He goes to the charcoal fire in the courtyard, warming himself. He's got his head down. Servants and officers. He's got officers right around there. He's like... Yep, yep, okay, okay, good. And then a little while later, this happens. Go down to 25 to 27, final verses. Now Simon Peter, so Jesus is being interrogated by Annas, just gets slapped, and now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself while this is going on. So they said to him, people who were around the fire with him, they said, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? Same question. And he denied it and said, no, I'm not. No, no, wrong guy, wrong guy. And then 26, one of the servants of the high priest, this was a little while later as we see in the book of Luke, a relative of the man whose ear, now it's getting personal. See what's happening? A relative to Malchus. The ear that Peter had cut off. What are the chances? He asked, hey, hey, did I not see you in the garden with him? I saw you there. That was my cousin. And look at what Peter says. Peter again denied it, and at once, the rooster crowed. You see, Peter is questioned two more times. If he was a disciple of Jesus, he denied it both times. Actually, the word denied there, make note of this, in 25 and 27, it means to refuse to confess or identify with a person. You refuse to confess Jesus' name and identify with him. It literally means to turn away from or disown a person. to disown a person. See, Peter just disowned Jesus three times, and he has failed miserably in his commitment to follow the Lord. And, and think about this. This coming from a man who, back in John 13, 37 to 38, just a couple hours before, arrogantly stated earlier on in the upper room, he said, I'm ready to lay down my life for you. He's like, bring it on, Jesus. I'm ready to die. That was just a couple hours earlier. We always like to put ourselves better than we actually are, don't we? Think we're ready for what we're not, don't we? To which Jesus replies in John 13 in his sovereignty authority, he says, he knew Peter wasn't ready. 
He knew it. And he said, the rooster will not crow till Peter denied him three times. And that's why it's so significant in verse 27 that it's written, and at once the rooster crowed. See, but here's what we have to understand from this and be encouraged by. It doesn't tell us what Peter's response was, was here, does it? So let's fill in the detail a little bit from Luke chapter 22, verses 61 to 62. You see it on the screen. Look what happened. Rooster crows, and the Lord turned it is. So Jesus is in the courtyard. He's being questioned. He just turns and he looks at Peter. No words. He just looks. Not in some condemning glare. Like, Jesus just turns. He hears that rooster. And at that moment, he met eyes with Jesus. He locked eyes with him. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And look at Peter's reaction. He didn't just slough it off being like, oh, I failed again, but there's grace. It's all good. Look what he did. He went out and wept bitterly. Grieving over his sin, not making excuses for it. Well, I would have, you know, I would have totally stood firm if, if that person hadn't asked me the question. If that per- How often are we blaming others for our own sin? Let's stop that. He wept bitterly in shame, in condemnation, filling his soul and knowing that he'd blown it again. Hey, loved ones, eyes up here. Have you ever felt like this? You ever felt like you blew it again? And you're living in the shame? You're living in the condemnation? See, I want to encourage you with this. As I was encouraged, Jesus knew Peter's failure was coming. Jesus knows your failure and my failure is coming. Yet he told him before this, I'm going to use you to lead my disciples. I'm going to use you to preach my word. I'm going to use you to see my church built for my glory. And here's what this means. So beautiful truth. This wasn't the end for Peter. I'll say it again. This wasn't the end for Peter. How do you know this? Well, we know the end of the story. In John 21, not long after this, Peter would be around another charcoal fire. Exact words in the book. Another charcoal fire. Only at this one, he doesn't deny Jesus. He returns to Jesus. And Jesus, out of his great love, and grace and forgiveness. What does he do? He restores Peter to his service for his glory. Shame is gone. Guilt is removed. Grace given. And life restored. And how many of us today are, right here, are living in the shame and guilt and condemnation over our sin? Our failure, our denial of Jesus? How many of us, because of that, are like Peter, running further from Jesus? Well, I can't get in his word. I can't call on him in prayer because I did this. I did this. Instead of returning to him, we're living disgraced, wondering if he still loves you, if he will forgive you, whether he looks on you with that condemning glare, whether he wants you to clean yourself up before you turn back to him for denying him with that pornography or the gossip or slander or grumbling or complaining or your fear of witnessing, just like Peter here, in the opportunity he gave you. 
in your idolatry, in your marriage? How about in your parenting? Hey, parents, do you ever feel like you blow it with your kids? Man, I resonate. And you feel like you've blown it, and you're just like, oh, I did it again. But I want to encourage you with this. You see it on the screen. No failure is beyond Christ's forgiveness. No failure is beyond Christ's forgiveness. Hey, parents, I just want to encourage you with this. It hit me on the drive over here. Um, God specifically chose you for those precious children. You remember that. Return to him. Your failure isn't the last word. Let's go. You have a sovereign king who's sovereign over your failure. He knew your failure was coming. And in Jesus, your failure never has the last word, but he does. And if you're not dead, it means Jesus isn't done with you. And he's your triumphant king. Will you return him? And when the devil day after day says this, we close with this. When the devil says to you day after day, you're a mess. Look what you did. Look what state you're in. You think you have any credibility left? When the devil starts to chirp that condemnation, look at the state you're in. You think you can return to the Lord? You think he still loves you? You think he still wants to use you? Hey, loved one, here's the reality. Because Jesus is sovereign over our failure and he chose us anyway. Ready, ready? It's a new day in Christ, isn't it? And when the devil starts his voice of condemnation, if you are saved in Jesus Christ, here's what you can say. Yes, I failed there. Okay? Admit that. Confess it. But isn't it amazing what grace does? I will return to him. I will repent and know the power of his forgiveness, his cleansing and his restoration in my life. And I will serve him in his power for his glory. I am who Jesus says I am. And he says I am his beloved child. Amen? In your face, devil. In your face, devil. How will you respond when things get out of control? When they seem out of control, will you believe Jesus is sovereign over all evil? Will you rest in him? And will you believe he's sovereign over your failure and return to him? He's waiting, loved ones. Come, let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Thank you for this word tonight, even in my own heart. Thank you. Um, you are a triumphant, sovereign king. That evil is no match for you. That you will always turn it for the good of those who love you. And what the enemy desires for destruction, you use it for good. Thank you that you're sovereign over my failures, over our failures, and that they never have the last word when we are saved in you. And so right now, I pray this would be a moment, Lord, of release. People would be returning to you, confessing that, coming clean, admitting, submitting, and committing to say, Jesus, I give this to you. Forgive me. I want to follow you. Give me the power. Give me the strength. Give me the faith to follow you that I would walk in your rest in these crazy days, steadfast in faith, knowing that you are over all and may Jesus Christ be magnified in me. And for all those who are here sitting under condemnation, 
Maybe those who've never confessed you, I pray tonight would be the night of their salvation. They would hear your voice and not harden their heart and come to you and have peace with God finally and know the rest of God. Jesus, be magnified, we pray in your name. Amen. Loved ones, will you stand?